In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 35 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Lapchuk, joined today by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, Camille. That sound you hear, which is going to drive our producer crazy, is uh, coffee. I'm, it's very early today, Camille. We're doing an yeah. early morning podcast. Well, early for you, I guess. 11 for me, so not exactly early, but morning podcast. We usually record at the end of the day, so nice to be doing it first thing for a change. Excuse the How sound. Is, how's it going? Excuse the sound of my sipping coffee. It's going very well, Camille. How's it going with you? Oh, not too bad. I We've had just a wild ride the last couple of weeks here, but we'll get into why that is eventually. It's been um, a wild, wild ride. Wild, wild ride, protecting wild animals from all kinds of abuse. Uh, well, I'll just I'll just say it right now. We had three huge legislative victories in Parliament this last couple of weeks. Bills banning whale and dolphin captivity passed, shark finning imports, and also bestiality and animal fighting. So we're going to talk a lot more about that later. But in addition to all the legislative work, I went to Calgary last weekend for Calgary Veg Fest, which was super, super cool. It was great seeing you, I Camille. Know, but- I really appreciated it. It was nice of you to skip up to Edmonton while you were in Alberta. So it was, oh, wait a minute, that didn't happen. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, Peter, but you're not actually the focus of everyone's universe. Oh, whoa. Zing for an early morning, Camille. I was like, zing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> laying it down, laying it down. But it was actually an amazing event. Uh, it was a woman-run event, uh, just a, a group of incredible young women who put this event together. It was honestly one of the best veg fests I have ever been to. Wow. And I go to a lot of veg fests, but it was outdoors in the Shaw Millennium Park in Calgary. There was a beer tent area. There was a great stage for speakers, tons of vendors, just a really relaxed vibe with people sitting on the grass. And my talk went well. I spoke about the need for us to get politically active insert the uh, clopping sound forces right it's here. It's almost hard horse. to believe that that was your topic, Camille. Really, it's almost hard to believe. I, I know. <laughs> I know, it's shocking. Shocking. And I got to ca- catch up with lots of uh, vegan friends in Calgary. I also, I'm going to admit this for our listeners just because, I don't know, maybe I should be ashamed of it, but I'm not. I spent $110 on vegan cheese during my trip to Calgary <laughs> because there are so many cool local vegan cheese companies in the city. Uh, just tons, like both at Calgary Veg Fest itself and also at nearby grocery stores. That so is, I have uh, no regrets. That's a lot of vegan cheese, Camille. I know, but now I'm stocked up for quite some time. So yeah, I'm going to enjoy, enjoy the splurge for a while and no one's getting any. So don't ask me for any because I'm not sharing. Fantastic. Yeah. And what else has been going on? I testified in the Senate uh, last week about Bill C-84. That's the bestiality and animal fighting bill that subsequently passed. Um, that was really great. It was the Senate Social Affairs Committee and the senators on it were universally so keen on the legislation, really, really got why 
or animal cruelty legislation is so out of date and needs to be updated. And this is senators from all parties. We had conservatives, liberals, independent senators all saying the same thing. That was great. And we got a couple cool little animal justice newsy pieces, too. I want to extend a big welcome to our new staff lawyer, Caitlin Mitchell, who joined the team officially the other week. Caitlin comes to us as our first full-time lawyer at Animal Justice uh, on staff. There, there's me, but I spend so much of my time doing non-legal work that Caitlin's focus is just going to be our legal campaigns, which is really cool. And she comes to us after over 10 years working at environmental organizations, so EcoJustice and the Canadian Environmental Law Association. So very excited to have Caitlin on the team. Welcome, Caitlin. Welcome, I'm welcome. I'm sure she'll be on the podcast at some point to talk about her work. And I hope so. I, her... I don't think she listens to the podcast. That's all I remember from her interview. I don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> no, actually, I don't remember if she said that or not. That's just my assumption for everybody. That's just your baseline assumption. My I met tons of people assumption. in Calgary who listen to the podcast, by the way, and they're like, we love you guys. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, every time that you say no one listens to us, there's someone out there saying, hey, I do. Actually, we're about to scroll down when I have to say, when I have to admit that's not true. So let's wait on that. Hold that thought for just a moment. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. And the other exciting thing that we... Uh, we're up to this week is that we filed our factum in the Bogart's appeal. So that was the constitutional challenge to the OSPCA Act. We intervened in it previously. The court struck down the OSPCA's enforcement powers. And uh, obviously, the province is, on t- is appealing that case. So we are going to the court to appeal on it as interveners, and we filed our arguments in it. Fantastic. So that's that's my news. That is What's your uh, news? a lot of news. What's my news? Well, Camille, we had much bigger animal justice news that you, of course, completely forgot. You completely overshadowed it. This past really? weekend was the annual animal justice cookie and lemonade stand out in Edmonton. Ah! I mean, you're talking veg fest? Like, I scoff at veg fest. The event of the year was clearly the Animal Justice Cookie and Lemonade Stand run by my two children, uh, Penny and Oscar. We had a delightful Sunday afternoon. It was sunny. There was lots of traffic, and everybody got to come, have cookies and lemonade, and put some money towards a good cause, Camille. So we raised $68 for Animal Justice, and that $68 we've decided is earmarked exclusively for Camille's cheese collection so that she never has to run out of cheese. (laughs) Well, I like Penny and Oscar even more now. Uh, we should have given them the Hero Award it's this true. episode. That's, we really, that's we really, We really dropped the ball because my kids would be very excited to be the heroes of this podcast. But unfortunately, we have somebody else. So we'll just call them the local heroes. They've done this every year. I think this was the fifth one. So yeah, it was that very sounds excited. about right. They've we, been doing it for ages. Yeah, five years. Well, the thing is, right, we've realized, like, my daughter is... is 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 getting close to aging out of lemonade stands. She's still very excited, but you know how it is. Like when you have these older, it's like older kids going out for Halloween, right? It's like sort of, they're yeah. not quite as cute as they would. My, my son's got a few years left, but I think at some point it's just going to be Oscar's cookie and lemonade stand. And, uh, you know, and those will be sad days because it's been a lot of fun. We'll have to recruit some new adorable little children Absolutely. to run lemonade stands. This is an inspiration and you've for got all of our children. listeners. Exactly. Nothing better than an animal justice cookie and lemonade stand. 
So um, that's been going on. I've been really busy with work. I won't bore everybody. I had two cases in the Court of Appeal this week, so I had to go twice, which was very a lot of fun. Um, really interesting stuff. And uh, I am gearing up for a vacation, Camille. So that is... Uh, that is really what's going on in my life. I am I have one more week of work and then I'm heading off to Europe for a month and I will sadly be missing the next episode of Pawn Order. Give everybody a heads up uh, in advance. I'm taking a full vacation so I will not be recording, but I'll be back for the following one. And I get to one of the best things about this holiday aside from obviously I get to try lots of vegan food in Europe. Camille, I have to do something I haven't done. Are you ready? I haven't I haven't done this in over 30 years. And you want to know what that is? I, take a guess. Of, yes. It's, I'll give you a hint. It's, it's, it's a place I haven't gone to for 30 years. And to make it more of a hint, this place is everywhere. It's the type of place you can visit in any city. And I have deliberately not gone there for 30 years. But I will be going there in Germany in July. Do you have any idea what that is? Um, could it be like a McDonald's? I am visiting McDonald's. I am, I am really crazily, probably over stupidly, excitedly going to go to a McDonald's. But let's put it this way. When McDonald's launch, launches a McVegan burger, which is as of this moment only available in Germany, it's in some other Scandinavian countries as well, but it's just launched in Germany. I sort of have to take my kids to McDonald's for the first time. Like, I'm not a McDonald's oh, guy. Yeah. I'm not a McDonald's guy generally. I actually stopped going there before I was vegan because I didn't like franchise food and stuff like that. But it's like, you know, they introduced it. I've gone to A&W a couple of times. I got to go to McDonald's. Like, I'm just, I want to try the McVegan. So that's what I'm doing. I'm going oh, to Germany yeah. to try the McVegan. You definitely have to. I didn't actually realize it was in Germany. I heard that Finland had the McVegan burger, but didn't know about Germany. So that's awesome. It's only two weeks uh, ago. Two weeks ago, they launched a national campaign because Germany is one of their biggest overseas markets. So they decided to test market it. And of course, Germany is actually quite big on vegan food. So they've launched it. Uh, test launched it in uh, Germany. There, I think it's for a year uh, before it spreads elsewhere, as it always does. And uh, yeah, so I get to go and try. I'm going to be trying it early. I will be reporting on the McVegan on not the next episode upon order, two episodes from now. Well, I look forward to hearing how this is and eventually trying one myself. That's that's really cool. That actually reminds me. Have you tried the new Tim Hortons Beyond Meat breakfast sandwich yet? No, it's on my list. It's just the thing is, like, I don't go to Tim Hortons like ever. So I've just like I've just it hasn't been on my radar. And then when I heard about it, I wanted to go, but I don't eat breakfast out. Right. So uh, it's available all day, I'm guessing. Is that fair? Yeah, it's, it's available all day. I had one like around lunchtime when I was in Calgary. I, I stopped by on the way to Calgary Bench Fest. I, I heard a review, and... but you tell me. What's your review? Uh, the sausage patty itself tasted great. It came with lettuce and tomato, but it needed like cheese or vegan mayo or something. It was a little dry. <laughs> so I would still go get it again, but I would probably bring my own cheese slice. That's, that's literally what my friend said. Like that is, you just literally <laughs> gave the same review. I would, he said, he said, the only thing he said differently, he said exactly the same thing. He goes, you can't sell it that way. It's just too dry. Like what they need is they need to do a deal with veginase, right? Because it needs some veginase or something in it. That's that's the only way. Exactly. Because I feel the same way about uh, uh, the A and W thing. I mean, they take everything off of it, and then like, but at least with the A and W, you can put some mustard or ketchup on. But uh, for a breakfast sandwich with cookie, it doesn't sound right. I think it needs mayonnaise or cheese, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And everyone I've talked to has said exactly the same thing. So maybe we can pressure Tim Hortons into doing that. See, that's why I'm moderately, and let me just stress, moderately excited about the McVegan in Germany, because I get the impression that the McVegan has been put together with like careful thought about how the sandwich works. So I get the feeling it has sauce. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what's so funny. These, yeah. these, they, I, 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 it's funny how we're giving kudos and criticism at the same time, because I'm giving kudos in the sense that they are actually thinking about us. Great. You know? Okay, great. But like you go to the A&W and they have their breakfast sandwich with Beyond Meat. And it's like, it's just, it's, it's not targeted to vegans. It's very clearly targeted to people who just want to eat less meat, which is fine. Like I'm good on everything. Right. And I say that because of course it's a, it's a bacon and eggs. It's a sausage and egg sandwich. But they don't give any thought to the vegan version of it, which, of course, is very dry. So it's like, again, there's just no like, okay, make the freaking whole sandwich, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't just you can't just uh, do something new and ignore all the components that go into making like a good meal. Well, because you fail. That's what ends up happening. That's why a lot of these things have failed in the past, because they're just not tasty. Like someone if someone goes (laughs) just to give an example, you go have the beyond uh, you have the Beyond uh, sausage breakfast at A&W, right? And then you have the vegan version of the Beyond sausage uh, thing. And like, of course, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the vegan one's better or even as good because it has no sauce. It has no egg. It has no, you can't get the full taste variation, right? So like, obviously the vegan, oh, the vegan one's terrible. Yes, of course. If you do it terribly, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. We got off on a yeah, little tangent agreed. there, but that's okay. Well, at the risk of becoming a food podcast, <laughs> I guess we should move on. But <laughs> I look forward to hearing how the McVegan burger is. I, I really can't wait to see your forward. photos of it, too. Text me when you, when you <laughs> have it. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll tweet out a photo. So let's uh, get some uh, other things out of the way here. We have a shout out. We have three new Patreon patrons. And again... As much as I love our notional listeners, uh, you know, I love our Patreon patrons even more because it allows us to keep doing what we're doing. And really, every time I see a new patron, and I don't, I don't care how much they're contributing, really, it's just so wonderful. It fills me with joy. I believe only one of our new Patreons wants to be named. Is that correct, Camille? Because I'm only yeah, seeing one. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think two wanted to be anonymous, but thanks very much to those two anonymous Patreons and to Joshua, who has uh, who has really helped support us, and, and we really appreciate it. Thank you guys for being superstars. We love you. Absolutely. Now, we have a follow-up from a couple of weeks back, um, which I'm very excited about. Now, Camille, you know, it really has to fess up because she was talking about how our listeners never do anything and how they don't, you know, come through. Well, no, that was me. <laughs> oh, that's so unfair. All right, that was me. <laughs> yeah, that was you, Peter. That was me who was wondering. You, you don't think we have any listeners. What are our listeners doing for us? And we put it out there because it was like a challenge to say, listeners, we need your help to come up, if you remember, with titles for our newsy episodes. That was about two episodes back, I think, Camille. We had an episode that was just about the news, no main topic like we do today, just news. And we wanted something cool because I like those newsy episodes. Every once in a while, there's a lot of news, and I don't think we need to go to a main topic. I think we just go through the news. So we needed some names for it, and I was moaning that we only had one, but like, boy, have our listeners come through. We've got a whole whack of suggestions here to run by our listeners. Yeah, so we're going to read out a few of these, and we'd love your feedback on whether you like any of them. And I think we're going to try to do some sort of poll maybe on Twitter in the future. So maybe if we're 
doing that by the next episode, I can let you know about it and share right. a link and you can go weigh in. Let's grow, but go through, but then I'm going to give you my, my two cents, but go ahead. Okay, well, our first suggestion is from Debbie. Thanks for this, Debbie. She says, you could call it a nose for news or a nosing through the news. Then we've got Garth, who's suggesting all the news that's fit to podcast podcast, which is sort of a play on the New York Times tagline of all the news that's fit to print, uh-huh. which they've been using since like 1896. All right. Aaron is suggesting Hooves News. Hooves News. Hooves. Yes, yes. Hooves News. H-O-O-V-E-S. Kelly says we could call it a news hound episode or herding slash herded headlines. Cool. And Marcella says uh, we could try pause for news, P-A-W-S for news. So it refers to pausing regular podcasts for a news podcast and is on brand with Paw or Order. So these are all these are all great, actually. These are all great. I have to say, at first I was leaning towards one, then I'm leaning towards another. I kind of like, a, I like all of them, but I, I'm leaning towards a couple. I still think the original nosing through the news is pretty darn good. Um, I Although I'm starting, like, I, I think herding the headlines is pretty clever too. And so is pause for news. But I think pause for news, it's just the, it, pause for news works better on paper. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think I lean, yeah. I think it doesn't work as well through the oral. Sorry, Marcello, I do think it's a great idea, but I love looking at it. I don't think I love saying it because it just doesn't, it doesn't come through as clearly. So I, if I had to pick, I would probably go with herding the headlines or nosing through the news. What do you think, Camille? I, yeah, I've got mixed feelings. I like all of them in different ways. Uh, I'm going to avoid weighing in for now oh, and instead see you. what our listeners think. <sighs> yeah. So, I'm gonna so put that put one put that one back to our listeners. listeners. So if listeners, you have other suggestions, whatever you do, write to your MPs and let them know which suggestion you like best. Please do. <laughs> and while you're at it, you can also leave us a review if you love Pod and Order on uh, Apple Podcasts because it helps other people find the podcast. It increases our ratings and makes it more visible. We got a new review recently from a listener named Ellie who said. I love this podcast. Things are pretty dire for animals, but I listen to Paw and Order and it gives me hope for a better future. Even though it's a law podcast and I'm not a lawyer, Peter and Camille break down complex legal ideas slash jargon in a very accessible way. I always look forward to Fridays, especially when it has not been a good week for animals. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much for that, Ellie. And if you folks would like to follow in Ellie's footsteps and leave us a review, just check out Apple Podcasts and you'll find us there. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ellie. Yeah. Now, now one last thing before we move on to our in the news section is uh, an ad from our sponsor, The Grinning Groat. So The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They ship online across the country, but they also have a storefront in Calgary. And Peter, I actually, of course, stopped by The Grinning Goat when I was in Calgary last weekend and visited those wonderful gals in person. Uh, Such a great store. Mm -hmm. They have tons of amazing vegan shoes, footwear, boots, uh, jackets, t-shirts, apparel of all varieties, uh, really funny vegan tees with slogans on them. And they also have great zero waste products like shampoo and conditioner that you can take on the road that are are in bar form. Uh, They have some food and candy and all, all kinds of little items like that. And if you're a listener of the podcast and you'd like to purchase something from The Grin and Go, you can use the discount code PAW15 for 15% off at checkout. And did I mention they ship across the country? Across the country. Great stuff. Thanks very much. I always love visiting The Grin and Go. I haven't been to Calgary in a while, but uh, when I do, I always stop in. 
You got to do it. So, oh my God. I don't know how you made it 17 minutes. Well, 19 minutes without talking about uh, what's going on in Parliament. You talked about it a little, but obviously it has been a very big week as Parliament has closed down, but they managed to do some stuff before closing. They sure did. It was uh, fast and furious on the animal protection legislation for the last two weeks and three animal rights bills passed in Parliament since our last podcast. So on Monday, June 10th, the whale and dolphin uh, captivity ban passed. That's Bill S203. Animal Justice has been working on that for... Uh, quite some time. The bill was first proposed over three and a half years ago, so it took just an epic amount of time to work its way through Parliament. Face barriers every step of the way. Conservative Senate leadership tried to kill it many, many times, but every time it was brought back from the brink by probably a lot of you who are listening to this episode. But certainly Canadians rose up and said, don't kill this bill. We want to see it pass. And it did. So Peter, I gotta say it was like, pretty much one of the best days ever. We were in Parliament during the final debate. Lots of really positive comments from Liberals, from NDP MPs, from Green Party leader Elizabeth May, who was the bill sponsor in the House of Commons. Uh, there was a really funny moment, actually, with one conservative uh, MP, Blaine Calkins. He's a conservative from Alberta. He opposed the bill and one of his reasons for opposing the bill is that he said it was kind of a thin edge of the wedge issue. We'd be coming after rodeos next and horses and trying to get horse captivity banned and, and all of this stuff. And he sort of looked Camille, right you, up at the animal act, advocates when he said it. You, you got his, you, you mispronounced his name. It's Sopak. So no, no, sorry. It wasn't Bob. No, no, it wasn't our friend Bob Sopak. I think Blaine Calkins is gearing up to take his place. He is. Bob's retiring. I mean, I feel like that what you just said was literally what Bob says every time anybody tries to do anything. So I'm going to miss Bob, yeah. but at least at least we have a new zero in waiting, right? We've got uh, Blaine. Blaine, congratulations. Looking forward to adding Blaine you. Is, we can't give him the zero Bob. this week because we have a better candidate, but it's it's good we have somebody for future. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, Bob has passed on the baton to Blaine Calkins, who I think is ready to run with it. So he actually he actually mentioned at one point uh, that you can judge this bill by the company it keeps, and some of that company is radical people like Animal Justice, in particular. He mentioned and some SPCA's and humane societies that Peter gasp want us to stop eating animals. Wow! Ah! Look, Camille, I I I dispute most of what he said, but. You just spent like $110 on cheese. So like radical, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm supporting the maybe, cashew farmers. Maybe, you know, anybody who's spending that much money on cashew cheese. I got to question their radical nature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a distraction. The, the bigger news is that, that the bill passed. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a stunning moment. We celebrated in Parliament with all of the people who've contributed to this bill the whole time. So Senator Wilfred Moore, who was the original bill sponsor, Elizabeth May, who sponsored it in the House, uh, NDP MP Gord Johns, uh, NDP MP Finn Donnelly, many other MPs so many, and senators so who've many, contributed so to this. Many so many yeah. colleagues from uh, Humane Society International, right. Humane Canada, Oceana Canada, just many, many groups who were there celebrating. And it was just honestly one of the best days. Fantastic. And the other thing to, to be aware of, like the passage of this bill and the other two bills too, is literally groundbreaking. Parliament has never, ever 
ever before passed any serious animal protection legislation. The only thing that we've got is criminal penal laws that punish people for things that they've done, but don't do anything to prevent cruelty before it happens. So this was a huge deal and a monumental moment in our country's history and hopefully just the start of many things to come. Fantastic. Great stuff. And that did not end there, of course. Camille, eight days later, you were back on Parliament Hill whooping it up again. Yeah, back in Parliament Hill watching the Senate debate uh, Bill C-68. So that was the shark fin, ba- uh, shark fin bill. We're going to chat shortly, uh, do an interview with a, a summer student of animal justice and a longtime colleague, Gabriel Wilgen, about the whole history of this issue. So that night they ended up passing Bill C-68 and they also passed Bill C-84, which is the bill uh, defining bestiality as including all animal sexual abuse and restricting animal fighting and closing some loopholes there. So that was a pretty pretty huge day for animals as well. So we ended up with three pieces of animal protection legislation out of this parliament, which is pretty awesome. I remember after the last election, Peter, I, I wrote a blog post saying that Canadians had probably just elected the most animal-friendly parliament in Canadian history. There were tons of MPs committed to doing the right thing. And I got to say, I felt pretty pessimistic about our chances of getting anything serious done after Parliament killed Bill C-246. That was Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's cruelty legislation in the fall of 2016. But Parliament has made up for it since then. All of these steps are huge progress, and I'm excited for what's to come. I'm personally excited that we can finally close the chapter on having to speak about animal as as sex objects, Camille. I believe we've been talking about it since the very first show that we did a year and a half ago, and it's come up over and over and over again, um, because of course we intervened on the case that decided the issue in the first place in the Supreme Court against a broader interpretation of bestiality. And now, as of June 18th, I think we can stop talking about it, Camille. Is it, is it, can we stop talking about bestiality for a while? Oh my god, I really, really hope so. It it has literally been four years this month since we started getting involved in that DLW case and worked on this issue. So it's been a long haul, Peter. Four years. Yeah, (laughs) I think we're overdue. Yeah, I think so. I think we're probably going to have to... uh, I'm going to have to talk about this a little bit more until the end of the year just to let everybody know about all the great work that happened this year. You you go ahead. I'm very close. I'm done with it. Actually, I'm not done with it. I'm sure I'm going to bring it up at the conference in my talk. So I'm not quite done with it yet. Fantastic. That's great news, Camille. Now, what else has been going on? Oh, well, uh, there's a cool article I wanted to bring everyone's attention to in the Toronto Star. So it's an editorial, actually, by the Toronto Star Editorial Board. So one of the biggest papers in the country calling on Canada to do even more for animal rights after the next election. So they're talking about these victories and how it's good news. But this really just must be the beginning. And that Despite the fact that we've made progress, there's still so many areas where Parliament has just left animals out in the cold so far. So I was super encouraged to see this from such an influential voice, and I think it bodes well for what's to come. There is much, much more to do. And uh, one thing that I want to signal as a a topic that needs to be addressed. We're always so busy talking about the substantive cruelty sections of the code, and those are important. And I really want to put on the radar at an early point for all of Parliament that we need to do something to address the procedural issues involving animal cruelty prosecutions as well. That is a real problem. I hear about it on the ground all the time. And for those of uh, listeners who are not lawyers and don't know what the procedural problems mean, it means that uh, calling animals property has a lot 
of issues and a lot of concerns. And one of those issues is that when you try to prosecute an animal cruelty offender, it is a real problem to deal with the so-called evidence in the case or what you do with the animals um, while that criminal prosecution is pending. The criminal code does nothing to deal with this, and it is a real problem. Yeah, that's right. So how do authorities legally seize animals? How long can they be held? Where can they be held? All these sorts of questions are very challenging for enforcement authorities to sort out and usually end up being resolved to the detriment of the animals. Yeah, it's it's really not good. We could do a whole topic, a whole show on that. But I mean, just to, to again, the criminal code is is meant to deal with it's meant to deal with human crimes and you don't ever have to seize a human as evidence, nor do you have to, if you have to rescue a human from a bad situation, there's tons of different laws to enable you to do that. But it's very, very difficult when the animal is in the possession of the owner and it is the owner's property. It's really hard. And the criminal code gives us very little guidance about how to deal with it. And most investigators are just dealing with it on an ad hoc basis. And it's just not good enough. We need to do better for our animals. That's actually a great segue, Peter, into the next news story that we wanted to mention, which is a piece about the uh, prosecution of a Quebec Zoo. So we've spoken about this before. Our friends at the Montreal SPCA laid indictable criminal charges against uh, a Quebec Zoo for pretty serious neglect and cruelty um, of animals. And that zoo has lions, tigers, zebras, bears, kangaroos, primates, many, many animals who need to be rescued and taken to some temporary shelter while these charges are prosecuted and resolved. They, The zoo challenged the Montreal SPCA's search warrants in court. And my understanding is that over the past couple of weeks, there's been a pretty extensive uh, legal argument about this in court that was very challenging for the Montreal SPCA and HSI Canada, who's helping with the relocation, to deal with. And I think that there were personal attacks against the organizations involved in carrying out this law enforcement function. So really discouraging stuff. But it looks like the court has rejected the zoo owner's challenge to those search warrants. And now the Montreal SPCA and HSI Canada will be able to relocate those animals and rescue them into proper homes while the charges are resolved. That is excellent news, of course, and it's really uh, it's significant that there were so many animals. Um, it's always tough to... He had a tough challenge. Once the search warrant's been issued, it's pretty tough to get the search warrants quashed. It seems to be... Yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, the trial judge just ruled that you couldn't do that. It had to be heard at trial. So I'm not that surprised. Most search warrants that seize uh, matters, it's very rare uh, for a uh, criminal accused to be able to get back all their property before trial. Once it's found that there are grounds to seize, it usually goes through at least until the trial. Yeah, absolutely. And and I haven't read this decision, so I, I may not be uh, operating on the right assumption, but I believe that the judge said that this is the kind of thing that has to be challenged within the trial. Yeah. Like the remedy in this case is not just to quash the search warrants at this stage and give the animals back. The remedy is to uh, challenge on a charter basis in the trial. That's that's what I understood this to say as well. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, now we're going to head into our main segment today. I'm so excited for you to listen to my interview with Gabriel Wilchin. I'm going to introduce him when we get to that segment. But we had a really fascinating conversation about shark finning. And one thing you might want to keep in mind while you're listening is just the the time it sometimes makes 
takes to make legal change. Campaigns may start and seem promising early on, but you may have to face several defeats on the way before you ultimately win. So I think that's one of the themes that emerges in our conversation about the shark finning uh, legal initiatives in Canada. And just really excited to celebrate uh, this huge victory now and take a really interesting look back behind the scenes at a political campaign for animals and how many years of work and defeats along the way can eventually pay off. So here we go. Okay, and for today's main segment, I'm joined by a very special guest, Gabriel Wilgen, who is uh, currently uh, going into third year at Harvard Law and working with animal justice for the summer. But before Gabriel went to law school and before he was with animal justice, he spent many years working at Humane Society International Canada on all kinds of campaigns, including wildlife issues, and especially including shark fin, which is what we are going to talk about today. So Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Camille. uh, Thank you for having me on the show. It's uh, fun to be here. Yeah, well, we have a cool topic today because we've seen some pretty incredible movement on the issue of shark fin this week. And it's especially exciting, I think, for both of us because we both have a very long history working on this issue. I guess the advocacy work started, for me at least, back in 2011 when the whole issue of Ontario municipalities banning shark finning first came up. So we'll get into all of that and more. But um, why don't we just start off for listeners who are not so familiar with shark finning and what it is and why it's done. Do you want to just give a quick overview of what shark finning is, uh, who does it, why, what products are created from it? Sure. Yeah. So shark finning is the process of cutting the fins off of a shark and then throwing the rest of the shark back into the ocean, um, often while the shark is still alive. And if the shark is still alive, then the shark then dies a very slow, agonizing death. Uh, because without having their fins attached to them anymore, they can't move through the water and they need to continually move through the water to get the uh, oxygen to move their gills. So they essentially suffocate slowly underwater without their fins. Uh, they slowly bleed out and also they suffer predation from other species while they sit at the bottom of the ocean. So it's a really a cruel fate for any shark, and it happens to uh, hundreds of millions, uh, or at least tens of millions of sharks every year around the world. Uh, the reason that this is done is that there is there has been a large market for shark fins, um, particularly in East Asia and uh, Asian uh, communities uh, around the world, um, particularly in older generations. Because um, going back uh, decades and centuries, it was really uh, considered a delicacy to serve shark fin soup. And because it was very hard to catch sharks at the time, they're these big, powerful animals. Uh, Only the the most wealthy aristocrats and royalty uh, in China and other parts of Asia were able to afford this. And they would serve it as part of a soup, uh, often to guests at weddings or at other large festive functions where they're trying to demonstrate their wealth by showing that they could afford this expensive product. Uh, But in more recent years, in the past 20, maybe 30, 40 years, uh, modern fishing practices have made it far easier to catch sharks than it ever has been before. And also, income levels have been rising dramatically uh, in uh, Asia and uh, in China and uh, and in communities around the world, uh, which is a great thing. But that also means that more people can now afford these much more readily available shark fins. And so, shark populations have been declining dramatically over the past 40 years, and many of them by over... 
uh, 90%. So it's, it's really become a major ecological problem uh, for the world because sharks are apex predators in the ocean. Uh, they've, they've been around since before the dinosaurs, believe it or not, hundreds of millions of years. So the entire ocean ecosystem has developed around sharks as the main regulatory predator in the, uh, keeping everything in balance in the oceans. And when you see them all disappear within a generation or two, uh, we're going to have major devastating effects that can affect all of us. Yeah, and there's very disturbing information about just how many shark populations are currently endangered or at risk of going extinct. And mm-hmm. I think it's around 25% was the statistic I most recently read, but that's a huge number of sharks. Mm-hmm. And obviously a huge ecological disaster kind of it's on its way. But it's interesting because I knew nothing about shark finning, I don't think, until I watched the film Shark Water. And that uh, amazing documentary, if you haven't already seen it, we'll post a link to it in the show notes. But it came out in, was it 2007 or 2008, and made a really big splash at the time. Uh, And it was made by a filmmaker named Rob Stewart. He's a diver, a conservationist, a biologist. He wanted to show the world what incredible creatures sharks were. And and far from the stereotype that people have in their brains of the scary great white shark in the film Jaws, they're actually sensitive, they're intelligent, they're quite gentle, um, curious about humans oftentimes, and pose very little risk to humans. So I think the beauty of shark water was that A, showed people just how great sharks are as an animal, but also showed them the brutality of the shark fin trade. He's got horrific footage in the film about what sharks endure, the uh, mass numbers of fins that have been sliced from sharks just set out on these huge roofs of buildings drying in the sun to become shark fin soup. Yeah, absolutely. That that film, I think, changed everything for sharks, and for the and really is what the spark of what this entire movement was. Uh, for anybody who's seen that film, uh, you know that it's highly emotional to see firsthand how this happens, um, and to. To, to be able to also observe the beauty of sharks in the ocean. I know there are scenes in the film where Rob, who would dive down with the sharks, would be swimming there right along with the sharks, even holding one in his hands and, and not being harmed by the shark at all. Now, this is something we wouldn't recommend to everybody who's not an expert diver and not an expert in being around sharks, uh, but it just goes to show that they really are beautiful creatures that do need to be protected, and uh, they're, they're certainly being threatened now. Absolutely. And just sort of in his addendum, we'll maybe come back to this later, but uh, tragically, Rob Stewart was filming a follow-up to Sharkwater a couple of years ago, and I think it was in the winter of 2017. He unfortunately drowned in a diving accident right before the the film was, um, or well, it was in the middle of production. So kind of a tragic ending to his story, but uh, we'll get to a happier ending because at least his work has has carried on and uh, resulted ultimately in a national shark fin band in Canada. But um, I remember back in 2011, I first started seeing movement in Ontario municipalities to start banning shark fin products within city borders. So I think it was Brantford was the first city to ban shark fin. And it was interesting strategy, Gabriel. I'm sure you remember this, but Brantford doesn't have any Chinese restaurants. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a city where there was any shark fin soup being served, to my knowledge. Uh, But they decided to take a principled stand against this, and it sort of kicked off the rest of the movement. So other cities like Oakville followed suit, Mississauga, and eventually Toronto City Council. I was there the day that that it was debated and finally adopted. 
Um, it, it, and it was interesting, too. It was proposed by two city councillors. One was Glenn de Bearmaker, and the other is Kristen Wong Tam, who herself is a Chinese-Canadian councillor. And uh, one of the things that's been really inspiring, I think, throughout this movement to restrict shark finning and, and protect sharks is uh, leadership from within the Chinese community. It's uh, certainly not something that's being imposed by outsiders on that community. It's being something driven from within. So I thought that was pretty cool. But the day that the shark fin ban actually passed in Toronto, it was it was really funny. Councillor De Bearmaker, one of the bill proponents or bylaw proponents, had brought an inflatable floating shark into the council chamber, <laughs> yeah, and I he floated. <laughs> yeah, it was like a remote controlled shark that circled the room. And <laughs> it was totally a publicity stunt, but it worked. <laughs> Yeah, it was cool. Uh, yeah, I think that image yeah, was so, burdened to all of our minds after seeing that. That was a pretty, pretty fun sight. <laughs> the speaker got so bad at him, but everyone in the chamber was just like erupting in laughter. <laughs> so, uh, so the ban passed. It was amazing. Animal justice was involved. Uh, we were actually called lawyers for animal welfare back then, and we helped mm-hmm. the city with a legal opinion, trying to demonstrate that they did have the municipal authority to pass the ban. Uh, tragically. The ban was challenged in court subsequently, and it ended up being struck down in in 2012. I don't agree with the decision. Animal Justice tried to intervene in that case, and unfortunately, we rejected the, the, the judge hearing the intervention application said, well, this whole issue is really about food. It's not about animals. Animal justice has no expertise in food law. So you guys aren't going to be allowed in the door to argue in court. And I was disappointed because ultimately the decision really didn't reflect uh, the city's powers over animal issues. And it was decided Mm. on other grounds. So I'll post a link to that decision as well. But it was a challenge mounted by some, some restaurant owners who were put out that they couldn't serve the product anymore. But at the same time that cities were doing this work in Ontario, other municipalities were stepping up as well. And we also saw federal movement. So why don't you take us through some of the steps that you were involved in when you campaigned on this issue at HSI? Sure. So shortly after the Toronto ban passed, uh, late late in 2011, that is when a uh, member of parliament, Finn Donnelly, very aptly named for this campaign, uh, decided <laughs> he was uh, with the with the NDP from uh, Port Moody, British Columbia. Uh, he he was felt very passionately about this issue. He'd seen the movie Sharkwater. Uh, he felt like something needed to be done about it at the federal level. So he put forward a private members bill that would ban uh, the importation of shark fins into Canada. Um, and and uh, we, we very quickly started working with him and his team of legislative assistants uh, and others within the NDP uh, to, to help move this, this bill forward. And uh, one of the early strategies uh, we decided on early on was to uh, build momentum for a federal ban and build support for a federal ban by continuing to pick up where Toronto and the Toronto area uh, had uh, left, left off and work on getting other municipalities in other parts of the country to also ban uh, shark fin shark fin sales uh, within their municipal borders. And uh, we saw that there was a lot of interest for that out in British Columbia in particular. Uh, there was a, a group at the time uh, led by two young Chinese Canadians, uh, Claudia Lee and Kevin Huang, uh, who were uh, educating members of the public, particularly young people within their own Chinese Canadian communities, about shark finning and about how ecologically devastating and cruel it is. Um, and there was a lot of buzz about the possibility of a shark fin ban there. So, uh, and also we knew that uh, 
Finn, uh, have, having been from the Port Moody, uh, the municipality of North Port Moody, thought that that would be a great place to start out on the West Coast. Uh, so there was uh, an individual citizen from Port Moody who introduced a resolution at city council uh, to uh, ban the, ban the uh, sale of shark fins within Port Moody. Um, there was quite a bit of campaigning and uh, behind-the-scenes lobbying of different municipal politicians. And uh, we weren't quite clear whether or not we had enough politicians to vote for it uh, on the day of the vote in Port Moody. But we, we, uh, I think what kind of put it over the edge was having a group of uh, school students come into the city council chambers with a bunch of different uh, shark paintings they'd drawn. And uh, the media was there to watch this as they, they walked up to the stage and handed their paintings to the city councilors and asked them to please protect the oceans for their futures. And once that kind of thing happens on camera, it's pretty hard for a lot of uh, otherwise hard uh, Hard to convince politicians to say no sometimes. So they, they some of the ones <laughs> that were sitting on the fence voted for it and passed the bill. Uh, and then that led to a slew of other municipalities uh, around the tr Vancouver area and uh, southwest BC in general and on Vancouver Island passing uh, more and more municipal shark fin bans. And uh, we started working with Carrie Jang, who is a city councillor in Vancouver, who, who is uh, really representative uh, of the Chinese Canadian community in, in Vancouver, uh, thought of as a real hero to them. And and he, he said that, you know, this is really not a cultural issue. This is an ecological issue and was willing to champion a, sh a shark fin ban in Vancouver as well. Uh, he really started leading the charge on that. Um, and then in, in in Calgary as well, there was a big movement. There's a great uh, local group there led by a woman named Ingrid Kunzel, uh, who is uh, pushing along with many other volunteers uh, and lobbying to have the Calgary City Council ban shark fins. And it seemed like we were on the cusp of having both cities do it. We even had Carrie Jang from Vancouver fly over to speak with Calgary City Council to encourage them to pass the ban. Um, and by this point, I think we had about 14 other smaller municipalities, um, similar to Brantford, that didn't have any actual shark fins in their jurisdictions, but more were trying to send a message to the federal government and to say that they would never have shark fins in their communities. Um, so there's a lot of momentum. But around that time, is, as you mentioned, uh, the Toronto ban was struck down in court. And once the Toronto ban was struck down in court, even though it was worded differently, and even though the ruling was kind of questionable, um, that kind of sent a chill throughout the other cities that had not passed bans yet. And they started saying, well, look, we don't want to get sued. We don't have to fight this in court. Um, we'll you know, we'll pass strong resolutions calling on the provincial and federal governments to pass uh, import bans and sales bans, but we're going to back off of this for now and, and leave it to the feds to do. Um, and then even further to that end, we actually, there was the Union of British Columbian Municipalities, which is a, a group that represents the interests of all the municipalities in British Columbia. Uh, they had their annual general meeting and they vote on all kinds of resolutions that they're willing to lobby uh, for, on behalf of all of the municipalities for to the federal government on various issues. And one of the resolutions that was put on the agenda, I believe, by Port Moody uh, was to call on the federal government on behalf of all the municipalities in BC to ban shark fin imports and to support Finn's bill. And uh, we got, uh, we, you know, we rallied around that, uh, around that, uh, that, 
that meeting. We got we held a press conference with several different city councilors and mayors from around British Columbia who had already passed shark fin bans. Uh, we handed out a little shark plushie toys to the city councilors who were going to be voting on this and had photo ops with another one of those floating sharks, similar to how Glenda Bermuda had <laughs> flown around the city council and really just created a huge buzz around uh, right around the, this issue right before they were going to vote. And I managed to make my way into the room to watch the vote and there was over 200 people there and I think only one of them voted against and the other 199 or so voted in favor. Uh, so that was a really big plus and got some uh, good media coverage of that as well. So all these municipal bans really did have a great effect in uh, drawing a lot of media attention. It's a slow drip of media attention over a period of months, uh, keeping this issue on the front burner in the media and putting pressure at the federal level to get this thing passed. So that, that was really just uh, a, a real uh, a real kind of whirlwind of activity over, over 2012 uh, leading up to the vote in 2013 and second reading on Finn's bill. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's one of the themes I've noticed about this whole f very many years long fight to ban shark fin products mm -hmm. in Canada is that uh, it attacks, it attracts intense media attention. People are very keen to hear more about this. They're very mm -hmm. interested. There's very strong public support. And it tends to just be some restaurant associations who are opposing it and trying to fight it. So the public support has never been a problem. But sometimes uh, politicians who are lobbied by the restaurant associations or who have members of the community who oppose it uh, tend to not vote the way that we would have liked on these issues. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so back to Finn. Finn Donnelly's bill. So I guess that was proposed, what, late in 2012 or 2011? Uh, 2011, yeah. 2011. And uh, it made its way to second reading, which was great. But I understand that it looked really good for a while. It looked like the bill would pass, but eventually uh, we got to second reading vote and it didn't pass. So I guess the political dynamic at the time for anyone who doesn't have their finger on the pulse of Canadian politics mm -hmm. eight years ago, nine years ago, mm -hmm. is that the Conservatives had a majority government. Uh, Liberals were a much smaller party and the NDP was the official opposition. And what, there was one Green MP as well. So what ended up happening in the vote? How did the political dynamic break down? So we knew all along that the NDP were going to vote unanimously. If you remember at the time under Stephen Harper's last government, the, the NDP were the official opposition and uh, there were far fewer liberal MPs uh, than there are now. And uh, so we knew that this being an NDP private members bill um, that everybody could get on board with. We had all of the NDP on board. Um, we had to do a lot of uh, talking and negotiating with the liberal MPs, especially those, like you mentioned, that were from ridings that represented, uh, you know, uh, lots of large Chinese Canadian populations where there were a lot of these restaurants and vendors selling shark fins that felt they might be affected. Um, so we had to have a lot of discussions with them to make sure that, uh, you know, this, that this was going to be politically doable for them. And ultimately we were get, we were able to get all the liberals to agree to vote in favor of the, the bill as well. Although at the time they were saying that they were willing to pass it through second reading, but once it got through to the committee stage, then they did want to see some amendments that would allow for some exemptions for shark fins from uh, certain species perhaps, or from certain countries where they, where they, they believed shark finning was not occurring. So that's something that may have been negotiated and the bill might have gotten watered down somewhat at the committee stage at that time. Um, but we did have the liberals ready to vote a second reading. 
And then we also, for a long time, you know, Finn and other allies within Parliament had been talking to their friends across the aisle among the Conservatives and did believe they had enough votes. I believe they needed about 20 or so votes from the Conservatives, along with all the NDP and uh, the Liberals, to, to pass the bill. And they'd had the assurances that that was going to happen uh, up until about the last week or so. And then uh, the leadership within the Conservative Party started sort of pressuring their own MPs not to vote for this bill and said, you know, we do think this is an important issue. We do want to do something about shark finning, but we'd rather do this through regulations than through legislation. So we promise you we will do something about it, but don't vote for this bill. Um, so that was effectively enough to get almost all of the conservative MPs that had been willing to vote for it not to. And we ended up losing the vote by, I believe, five or six votes that second reading, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, the government representative, I forget which MP it was, did stand up and speak on behalf of the Harper government at the time and said that, you know, even though we're defeating this bill, we promised to the Canadian public that we are going to take action on the regulatory front to make sure that products of shark finning don't get into Canada. So they, they did make that promise, um, and uh, unfortunately, the bill did not pass. And uh, following that time, you know, my colleagues at I and HSI did meet with high-level people in the Prime Minister's office and at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and at uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency as well um, to discuss uh, what might be done. And we developed a comprehensive proposal of what could be done at the regulatory on the regulatory front to keep shark fins out of Canada. And uh, it seemed like they were really taking us quite seriously and genuinely wanted to take action on this. Uh, but uh, over time, it seemed they started to drag their heels a bit, and it started to become less and less of a priority as it as the spotlight dimmed on it in the media. Um, so maybe that was a misstep a little bit uh, on our part. It, 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 you know, we really felt like we were going to get something on the regulatory front, but uh, unfortunately, the, the next election rolled around, and uh, that's when Prime Minister Trudeau was elected. And and by that time, the Conservatives had still not done anything uh, to protect sharks, unfortunately. So we we sort of had to start all over once we had the new government. Well, it's heartbreaking yeah. to to be mm -hmm. so close to passing that and, and think that we had the support and then not mm -hmm. win. But uh, you and I both know from many past experiences that when a government and a cabinet takes a position against a bill, it becomes pretty tough to convince MPs to vote a different way. It sounds like a very chilling signal against anyone who might want to vote uh, their conscience or vote against the government position. Mm -hmm. That's tough. And I guess one of the other challenges you're, you're talking about and it sort of makes me think about this whole eight years long campaign. And mm -hmm. one of the benefits of it was like the idea of it being kept in the news has always been mm -hmm. so important to keeping the momentum going. Absolutely. And I think you're probably totally right that when things are out of the news, the government feels less pressure and doesn't think it needs to respond to them right away. Mm -hmm. And in a, a world of competing priorities, it's easy to shuffle that to the back of the list and, and just sort of sit on it for a while. But mm -hmm. yeah, so... So we had the 2015 federal election, change of regime, liberals came into power, Justin Trudeau's the prime minister. And uh, I guess the first thing that we saw after the election was an attempt to ban shark fin through another private member's bill, this time from a liberal MP, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. And right. it was interesting because Mr. Erskine-Smith, he's a liberal from Beaches, East York. He's very pro-animal. We've talked about him lots on this podcast before. He's a tremendous guy. Mm -hmm. 
And he put forward a general animal cruelty bill that incorporated some changes that had been suggested in, in past liberal governments to the criminal code to address animal cruelty. But he also added in some popular measures that Parliament has considered before but never adopted, including a, a ban on the import of cat and dog fur into the country, a uh, ban on or an, uh, outlawing all forms of bestiality, and of course, shark finning as well. Yes. Yeah, so, and, they, and he basically incorporated the same language that Finn Donnelly had had in his bill into the shark shark fin portion of that bill. So it was an exciting uh, second attempt at the to get this thing passed. Um, but uh, as you know, that ended up uh, being very complicated in of itself, in part because not only were we trying to ban shark fin imports, but we were also trying to uh, achieve all these other, uh, you know, relatively modest, but in the end quite difficult to pass um, protections for animals at the time, and trying to do it all in one private member's bill. Um, so I think as your listeners probably know that uh, even though you know, there's a large coalition across Canada that uh, supported uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's bill. Uh, ultimately, uh, it failed again. Um, but it was encouraging to see what was happening in the speeches, at least when it comes to sharks, uh, during the debate around that bill. There would be a lot of uh, members of parliament from all political stripes who would say things like, you know, I, I really agree with a lot of this bill's doing. If, if it was just about banning shark fins, I would be voting for this today. But there's other uh, little aspects that, for one reason or another, I can't support this bill. But I, I definitely support the ban on shark finning. And you'd hear that from members of every political party. So that was kind of, you're just, we're seeing the momentum still kind of carrying on for that bill that we'd started with the first kick at the can with Finn Donnelly's bill. Um, and it's kind of an example that even when there are losses, there are sometimes victories in terms of um, keeping the momentum going towards what could be potentially an even better victory down the road. Definitely. It, it definitely kept the conversation going, at least. And uh, the good news is that even though Nathaniel's Erskine-Smith's bill failed, not too long after that, uh, maybe about a year later after his bill was defeated in October 2016, I forget exactly when it was, but a senator, Senator Michael McDonald, proposed, again, basically the same bill, but this time through the Senate. So that was Bill S-238, another shark fin ban bill. And it started moving in the Senate, made it to fisheries committee was was going through all the right steps mm -hmm. uh but senate <laughs> unfortunately is a place where procedural delays can be used pretty effectively as a strategy and his bill ended up getting caught up in a bunch of other animal related delays so there was mm -hmm. bill s203 the whale and dolphin bill which would have outlawed whale and dolphin captivity there was bill s214 the cosmetics testing bill and there was one senator, Don Platt, conservative Senate whip, who was adamantly opposed to the whale bill and sort of ended up holding all the other animal bills up as kind of collateral <laughs> on S203. So even though Michael McDonald, the senator who proposed the shark fin bill, was a conservative senator, he ended up getting caught up in these politics mm. kinds of kinds of issues. So it took a very long time to get out of the Senate and there were lots of advocacy efforts and a huge outpouring of support for Canadians to get that bill moving. But uh, finally, it did. And it passed through the Senate. It ended up in the House of Commons. But we started running out of time, which is always a danger, especially mm -hmm. at the end of the parliamentary session. This month, June is the last month, and we're into really the final days of Parliament and the final days of the Senate. Uh, although the bill made it to the House of Commons, it didn't 
get moving through in enough time. It, it was sponsored again. This is kind of a cool thing by Phil, Finn Donnelly, who was the original 2013 sponsor of his own bill that failed. But he was sponsoring Bill S-238, uh, but there just wasn't enough time to get it moving uh, to have all the committee hearings that were necessary and to get it through the House in time. But the encouraging thing was, that, as you noted, that uh, most people were on board with it. So it was a conservative senator who proposed it. The liberals had historically supported the bill. NDP had historically supported it. Uh, Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, had actually proposed a similar bill in the past of her own. So she supported it. So it didn't have a lot of opposition. And uh, the cool thing was that the government itself took the initiative to incorporate the shark fin bill into another piece of legislation that it was pushing. So a Fisheries Act bill called Bill C-68, which uh, they were very committed to passing before the election. It does great stuff for fish habitat. But at the Fisheries Committee in the Senate, uh, only a few weeks ago, the, uh, the the Fisheries Committee ended up amending the bill to include the shark fin ban. So it got in. Yay. And that Yay! pretty much guaranteed it was going to be passed at that point because there was no way they were not going to patch that fisheries bill, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the benefit of having government take something on is that they have a lot of control over the agenda and they are able to move their legislation through pretty quickly. So in the end, it was looking pretty good. And Gabriel, you and I went to the Senate on Monday when they were having the final debate on, on C-68. There'd been some back and forth between the House of Commons and the Senate on some amendments to that bill. But finally, the Senate was giving its final word on some of the amendments. And the senators ended up approving it. And it's become law very soon. Woohoo! Yeah, very, very exciting. Took took almost a decade, uh, but no more shark fins coming into Canada and, and none going out either. So it's a really, really uh, a huge win for animals and a huge win for the movement in general. Um, and to see this happening within the same seven days or so of the whales and dolphins ban being passed and uh, the other bill that's expanding the definition of bestiality and uh, tightening laws around animal fighting, it's just like you and I were just discussing before the interview, this has really been the biggest week for animals in Parliament in Canada, uh, really ever. Uh, so it's, it's been really thrilling. And the, the reality of it is still just setting in. It seems almost surreal to have so many good things happening all at once. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as you and I have both experienced many times working in this field, often you lose. Most of the time you lose. Most of the time, <laughs> so yes. We... <laughs> Most of the time. You, you that might be to starting to change. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we're into a new era now. Um, there's a lot of momentum to build on. I think that, uh, you know, policymakers and uh, politicians uh, and even people within the industry um, all across Canada and different, different levels of government are going to be taking the animal protection movement in Canada a lot more seriously from now on once, once they've seen what we can accomplish when we work together. I think that... I think that's absolutely true. There was a tremendous coalition of organizations and individuals supporting all of this legislation. And we really do have to give uh, hats off to uh, Humane Society International in particular, which, of course, you used to work there and they're still doing incredible work. They were there with Rob Stewart, the filmmaker, his parents on Monday to watch the ban come into place. And uh, Oceana Canada, too, which worked extensively on Bill C-68 and pushed for this work and many other individuals and organizations. So it was a huge, huge team 
team effort. And I think for the very first time, politicians were forced to listen to what Canadians wanted. Canadians Mm. contacted parliamentarians in droves, senators and members of parliament. Oceana Canada had a petition with 310,000 signatures on it calling for this action. So it was a pretty tremendous victory just for individual Canadians who spoke up to their MPs, who had those meetings, who made the phone calls, who sent the emails and and told them that this is what had to happen. And uh, Gabriel, it's cool too. You mentioned the, the three bills that were just passed. They're all tremendous victories. But the Sharkfin bill is arguably the most significant in one sense, because it likely affects the most number of animals. Uh, As you Mm. noted at the beginning of this conversation, there's tens of millions of sharks who are killed every year. And Canada imported, I believe, 170,000 kilograms of shark fins last year, worth over $3 million. So that represents a lot of individual lives. And shutting off the trade in this way will actually save sharks. Yes, absolutely. And something I've been noticing following the news about this, uh, this amazing victory, is that people around the world are noticing. I'm noticing articles in the United States pop up. I'm even noticing a Japanese news outlet has covered this. And uh, what I really hope, even though Canada was the largest country outside of Asia uh, to import shark fins, or they imported the largest number of shark fins outside of Asia, uh, that hopefully other countries that are still importing large quantities will now start to follow suit and pass federal bans because there were are no other countries in the G20 that have a federal level ban like this. And uh, I hope that there will be many more to follow now that Canada's taken the lead on this. I hope so too. And it gives us the moral high ground too, and gives us the ability to go to other countries and say, look, we've taken the step. We've, we've done, we've been the first to do this and you folks should consider following suit. It, it gives us the strength to be able to say that to other countries. Yes, absolutely. And I think it just helps improve Canada's image as a whole uh, on the global stage to show that we, we're the kind of country um, that are extending our compassion to other species and, uh, and also are looking out for the long-term best interests of the, of the oceans that we all share and the environment that we all share. So it's, it's really a win-win-win for everybody all around. Yeah, this has just been a tremendous couple of weeks, and I think we probably all could not possibly be more excited than we are right now. It's the start of the whole new era, is what I think. So we we had a great parliament this time, very animal-friendly MPs elected. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're hoping we're going to see even more action after the next election. So we'll be keeping everybody posted with uh, what the organizations are working on, what bills are coming up after the next election. But please expect to see even more. This is just the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. Very exciting times. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much for joining to discuss this issue and sharing your experience and long history with the campaigns and congrats. And thank you for all the work you've done. And thank you for everything you've done. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It was a a real pleasure. Hopefully we'll get to do it again. Um, And I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. All right. Now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show. Heroes and zeros. Heroes and Zeros. I'm going to let you do the hero because you've done so much work on this issue and you deserve to be a hero too, Camille, and in, in, in with rest, the rest of these uh, well-rewarded people. So go ahead. Well, well, thank you for that, Peter, but this episode's hero is Parliament, the Canadian Parliament. Yay, Parliament. I think it's... Uh, yeah, usually we... We don't always have kind things to say about Parliament and political parties and political actors, but 
In this episode, we really need to recognize all of the work done by so many people across party lines, members of parliament, senators, political staffers, at people's and ministers' offices, everyone who made these victories for animals possible in the last couple weeks. It truly was a monumental effort, and I got to watch a little bit behind the scenes while this was happening, just the amount of coordination involved and uh, the, the tremendous effort from so many folks in the political system. So that includes ministers' offices, So Jonathan Wilkinson's office in particular, who's the Minister of Fisheries, Uh, the Prime Minister's office had a role to play in in protecting whales and dolphins and also sharks. And and of course, the bestiality and animal fighting legislation. Uh, So many MPs who proposed bills, who proposed early bills that didn't end up getting adopted, but eventually were incorporated in this other legislation. So for instance, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's bill C-246, he proposed uh, banning shark finning and bestiality, and that eventually made its way into this. Uh, Finn Donnelly had a bill in 2013 that we spoke about with Gabriel a few minutes ago. So just so many people along the way who played a role in this, they deserve tremendous praise and our gratitude for changing Canada for animals. Absolutely. These are big days. We don't get to do this often. We don't get to celebrate often. And really, all three of these bills are important in their own right. Um, and they we, we could talk at length. We, we have talked at length about, I believe... I don't know if we've talked at length about shark finning, but we've certainly talked at length about the others. And, and I think all of them are important in their own right. And uh, I look forward to uh, revisiting their impact in years to come. Totally. And just one more thing I should add is that uh, the Conservative Party w- uh, was supportive of some of this legislation. Sometimes the leadership wasn't supportive of other legislation, but uh, many Conservative individual politicians played a role in this too. Michelle Rempel proposed a bestiality bill. She helped pass the whale and dolphin bill. Uh, there was a conservative senator, Michael McDonald, who put forward the shark fin bill that eventually got sort of passed. So it's it's not just one party. It's not just the liberals, not the NDP, not the Greens, but there are many conservatives involved in this too. So parties of all political stripes, uh, and including the Bloc Québécois as well, uh, deserve kudos. Fantastic. So thank you, Parliament. You're all our heroes until we get back to criticizing you for failing to do more for animals. Yeah, so, well, this brings us to our zero, Peter. Oh, no. our zero this week? The zero this week, it's Earl Driesen, a conservative MP. Sorry, Earl, if I got your name, Driesen or Driesen? Driesen, can't tell. Um, he's a conservative MP, and he caught my eye uh, this week when he was uh, involved in an ag committee report on farmers' mental health. And this ag committee report recommends criminalizing criticism of farmers. So this is going, this is sort of ag-gaggy type legislation. Is that what they're looking at, Camille? Well, it's it's pretty stunning. It's actually not clear what they're proposing. They, they issued this report that they'd been doing hearings on pretty much all winter. I kept getting these alerts based on testimony at this egg committee. So anytime somebody mentions animals at a committee, I get an email alert about that. And we just had industry groups showing up and talking about how they've been cyber bullied by online animal activists and how all of these exposés of the conditions like undercover investigations, how all those exposés are very hurtful to farmers. It was actually some pretty unbelievable stuff. And and we saw lots of witnesses and some MPs mentioning in the context of these hearings that we need to crack down on activism and propose some kind of law to address it. So what the report eventually recommended is putting a new section in the criminal code to 
somehow prevent people from criticizing individuals based on their profession. Um, you know, specifically in this case, I guess they're referring to the profession of farming. Very disturbing stuff. Yeah, it would last about four seconds before being struck down on constitutional grounds to begin with. And uh, yeah. it's just, you know, a backwards way of looking at the problem. And let me just state for the record, you know, because I like to state things for the record. Um, I'm not a big fan of cyberbullying in any context. I don't have any personal evidence to the extent that, that takes place. Um, I certainly distinguish between cyberbullying and criticism. And I, I have seen some some Twitter back and forth and stuff where it does get personal very quickly, although... Frankly, I think the cyberbullying goes both ways in this context, if I recall correctly, <laughs> having been on the other end of some of those <laughs> comments. But, um, but yeah, but that's not why Earl is our, is our zero, Camille. He goes a little further. And Earl actually oh, made some does. particular comments, and these are the ones that grabbed my attention, um, saying agriculture is an industry that faces heavy outside criticism, and there have to be consequences to that type of thing. Here we go, Camille. Are you ready? Canadian farmers and ranchers have the highest standards in the world. It should be something the government should be championing. Oh, I love those comments. <laughs> I love them. I love them. They're made with no basis, no factual foundation, no evidence, no law to back it up. Complete and utter freaking nonsense. Um, I remember who used to do that was our former uh, fisheries minister, and I'm going to butcher her name. This is under the Martin, uh, uh, sorry, not the Martin government, the Harper government. And I'm just going to butcher Shea? her. No, no, no. The the female. Um, oh, Leona. Leona. No, she was never a fisheries yeah, minister. Yeah, I thought, or I she know. was, she was minister of something. Oh, she was environment minister Envi for whatever. a while. Leona Aglukak. She Aglukak, was a Nunavut sorry. MP. I, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to mispronounce her name. And she used to do that all the time. We have the highest standards in the world. We have, we have the highest standards in the world. Our standards are great. And, and our good friend Bob, you know, did it all the time too. It's just like, it's complete nonsense. It's pure rhetoric. Um, it's not based on anything. And, you know, when we deconstruct it, we can show why we don't have the highest standards in the world. We really, really don't. We have virtually no standards on farm in contrast to many of the other countries in the world that, hey, they may fail in lots of ways, but at least they have standards. They have things that are legislated into existence that you have to abide by. We don't have that. We have lots of other informal things that uh, prove to be a lot of nonsense, but it's much easier for Earl to just say, don't criticize us. We have the highest standards in the world. Absolute nonsense. No, it's completely false, completely false. And, you know, just frankly, an embarrassment that anybody would make this claim. Wait a minute, Camille. It sounds like we're verging on cyberbullying right now. Like we could be in trouble. Uh -oh. Earl's, Earl's going to come after us. <laughs> Sorry, Earl. Be we're, not we're not trying to bully you. We're trying to expose your statement as complete and utter nonsense. Is that criticism, Camille? Because like that might be the type of criticism that they want to shut us up for. Yeah, I mean, if we're criticizing him because he's an MP, I guess that could be criticism based on the profession and we, under the proposed that's new criminal true. laws. Phew. We might go to jail, Peter. Camille, we got in under the wire because, phew, this parliament is closed, so they can't pass this bill now. And unless, unless Earl, you know what, Earl, I have an idea for you. Listen, Earl, seriously, what I want you to do is when you put this unconstitutional section forward, include an unconstitutional retroactive provision. Why not? Like while you're doing it, right? That way you can come and get Camille and I for this podcast. Wouldn't that be great? What? <laughs> oh, why not? Why not? <laughs> Nothing like that. I love that. So it'll be unconstitutional when you put it and then add the retroactivity so you can go backwards and get Camille and I. So if this is cyber criticism or cyber bullying, 
for the moment, Camille, we're safe until Earl gets his unconstitutional provision in. in. But for now, we can still continue to criticize his role as a conservative MP in spreading absolute nonsense about the highest standards in the world. So a very well-deserved zero for our friend Earl. And I I do apologize for the name because I do like to get the names correct. Drishan. I think it's Earl Drishan. Drishan. Drishan, I think. I, because I don't want, I want, if I'm going to be criticized, Camille, I want it to be for the substance of what I'm saying. I don't want to be criticized because I'm like mispronouncing people's names because that I do feel bad about. Well, sorry. Sorry, Earl. We did our best. We did our best. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode of Paw and Order. Um, I am off for a month, Camille. I'll be back uh, two episodes hence. I believe you are going to do a special episode in my absence, which I'm sure won't be as much fun. But you try your best, Camille. Try your best. Never as much fun without you, but you do deserve a vacation. Very much so. So I hope it's restful. And we'll be back in a month together, Peter. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order.